HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. So here we are today. It's me, Zara Tangora, and... And me, Bobby Comforto. And we are the mother-daughter team behind Processing here on Heritage Radio Network, which is a show about the intersection of food and grief. Bobby, hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad to... And we're here to talk about today um, our beloved host network, Heritage Radio Network, um, and just talk to you a little bit about the importance of listener support. So if you enjoy listening to this podcast or any of the other wonderful podcasts that we have here on HRN, the best way to show your support is to become an HRN member. Bobby, don't you think that HRN is a cool club to become a member of? I think it's amazing. And from the beginning when we were recording at Roberta's and you know meeting all the staff and having that wonderful space and realizing all the interesting shows that are on here. I, I just looked last night to see the array of new shows and different shows all about food and spirits. And it's a wonderful network to be a part of. Yes, it is a wonderful network and it is a great honor to be on here. And so, you know, you can also set up a recurring monthly donation for any amount of money. It can be $1, $5, $10, a different amount. Um, and you can choose the show this show processing, if you'd like, um, in the designated drop-down menu as a, a way to kind of donate. Um, so you can count on Bobby and I each week to make this show. We love doing it. We love talking with the incredible people who are generous in spirit enough to come on and share these really compelling um, and often difficult stories. Intimacy, and yes. Hang on, can you cut that part? What was that, Bobby? I just said, and the intimate stories. I just said intimate. Um, so I'm going to go back a little bit. Thank so you. you can count on Bobby and I to come on each week and, and welcome our wonderful guests to share these intimate, beautiful stories that um, about their lives. And all right, I'm going to go back, actually. Cut that. Um, so you can count on Bobby and I to come on each week to keep making episodes of processing uh, and interviewing amazing, wonderful people who are so generous of spirit and sharing these very intimate, vulnerable stories uh, with us and with you guys. And we want to keep keep working together to keep it going. Yes. And part of it, we have to support the structure that's supporting us to be here. Absolutely. That's a really, really good way of putting it. Uh, so at Heritage Radio Network, we like to give our regular special treatment. Sign up to become a monthly donor and get access to our very special secret menu. 
Uh, we've gathered exclusive discounts and offers from some of our favorite food and beverage brands. Enjoy insider pricing on goods that will ship right to your door. Uh, become our community. I'm sorry, uh, right to your door. Join our community of monthly donors. Special deals will come right your way throughout the summer. Um, so yeah, we encourage you guys to become a monthly sustaining member at HRN uh, and go on to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to get started. Thanks. Thank you for joining us and thank you, HRN. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora. And me, Bobby Comforto. Uh, for anyone who's new to the show, I just feel like maybe we should just do a quick reintroduction of who we are. Um, we are mother-daughter team. Uh, I'm a chef. This is me, Zara, speaking. I'm a chef uh, and a person who has experienced grief. Uh, my dad died a couple of years ago, which kind of prompted us to start this show. And Bobby is a psychotherapist uh, specializing in grief and trauma who's had a private practice for 30 years, used to work in hospice, um, has tons of experience running groups for, you know, 9-11 and, and the like. Um, and so, yeah, just, just I felt like we should just do a quick reintroduction, right, Bobby? Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's who we are. And um, so we, we made this decision. I also was a chef in my prior lifetime. Um, before Zara was born for 12 years, I had a food business and um, several food businesses. So we realized that there was such a commonality, of course, in our love for food. But um, we also had a deep love for spirituality and making sense of the world and people and stories. And I think that our podcast is about stories that we all live and seeing the resilience and the strength and the beauty and the vulnerability in all of us when it, and how food plays a part in that in some way. Beautifully said, Bobby. I ran into a, a past guest yesterday at the health food store and she was saying how wonderful and incredible you are as everybody does and how lucky I am to have such a close relationship with you as everyone does and is true. I am very lucky for that. And also, uh, we have had a, a hard relationship sometimes when we're mother daughter. And I was telling her that this podcast is also a really, although that's, it's not the goal. It was not why we started it. It's been such a wonderful way to kind of just keep evolving, um, and growing and expanding on our relationship. So it's true. And witnessing each other. Cause yeah. one of my greatest joys in my whole life will always be witnessing your depth and your, um, kindness and your heart and how you how you treat other people and I love that about the show thanks Bob. same so uh our guest today is Eddie Massey um Eddie is a young entrepreneur and the chef and owner of Eddie's Grocer in Greenpoint Brooklyn um Eddie comes on to talk about kind of a myriad of different things all kinds of all, this talk took a lot of twists and turns and um you know, Eddie is uh, originally uh, from Lebanon, and we talk about like, his early life in Lebanon, um, the kind of his current feeling, his feelings about the current situation in Lebanon, um, his, you know, cooking of traditional Lebanese food uh, mixed with kind of his own sense for 
for how he likes to cook and why he started Eddie's Grocery and a, a lot of other things. And it was a really cool talk. And Eddie is a great guy. Um, and I, I loved I loved our conversation with Eddie. It was really interesting and really unique. And it was very special. So without further ado, here is our talk with Eddie Massey. Bye, Mom. Bye. today with Eddie Massey of Eddie's Grocer in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And Eddie, welcome to Processing, first and foremost. Hello. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me on. Of course. So fun. So funny story. We met like so long ago. You were working for uh, some woman as her assistant. And we met when you guys came into Brucey, my old restaurant, and filmed yes. the segment. And I think we just like, we just stayed in touch on Instagram, right? Which is the power, yeah. one power positive power of the internet truly yeah and then i've just been kind of so taken with the stuff what you've built with your business and your food looks gorgeous and beautiful and bright and you know i uh i also started my business kind of by myself with you know not a t you know just kind of built it from the ground up and so i really respect that so much about how you're doing that and i thought this would make for an incredible conversation and, and here we are well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. And I remember, you know, coming to your place many years ago now. I feel like it was like four or five years oh, ago yeah. now, um, at least. <clears throat> and I loved the whole segment. It was kind of like the first time ever, like, filming a segment for me. So that was really cool. Um, and, yeah, staying in touch on social media. There's really big power with that. Yeah, there is. That's the good thing, the good side. So, mm -hmm. Eddie, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, where where did you grow up? Um, and we know that you're Lebanese and that that is uh, the food that you're making at Eddie's Grocery, which is so awesome. And I want to hear more about Lebanese food in general and, you know, what you're doing with your project there and connection with your roots and, and your history. But, yeah, can you just tell us a bit about, like, kind of your early life? What was it like? Uh of course. Um, so I was born and raised in Lebanon. So I was born, <clears throat> like... I lived in a very small town up north of Lebanon, right on the beach, called Anfe, and it is just a very, very small Greek Orthodox town. It's a fishing village. Like, I don't even like to call it a town. I like to call it a village because that's how it's small it is, and, like, everybody knows each other. So, like, you know, you say your last name, and then, like, your, my grandfather could list you the whole fi family. So it's that kind of place. Um, and I just, I grew around, I grew up around food, and I grew up around culture, and I grew up around the ocean and um not ocean mediterranean sea yeah. i'd like to say <laughs> um and um yeah it's a it's a very different type of upbringing i would say compared to the uh, american lifestyle um but then i moved to boston when i was 10 years old um in 2004 and um then after that i went to the culinary institute of america in upstate new york um that was before i got suspended and moved to new york city i moved to new york at the age of 19 um and now it's been like six or seven years and uh it's been quite the journey since i would say uh i've lost my hair throughout that journey but um it's been quite a uh challenging but truly rewarding 
um, journey so far. Yeah, you know, you mentioned in our pre-interview questionnaire that you, when you were in college, had started losing, losing your hair, and that was a really significant grief experience for you. And I really think that's such an interesting angle to kind of take a look at with grief in terms of just, you know, especially when you're younger, as we, I think it can be hard for people, I'm sure, at any age to lose their hair. But, you know, when you're younger, it's not typically how it goes. And I think that, like, we're all really trying to figure ourselves out and not, like, in a, it stand out and also not stand out. And you definitely don't want to stand out in ways that are against your will. And so what was that like as an experience? Because, you know, I know that it really affected you. Um, I think it just, it really affected me because it was like I was losing a part of me that I didn't want to lose. Mm. And it's, like, very hard to explain. But it's, like, you want it to stay, but it's just falling out. And it's, like, every day when I showered, it would just, like, fall out more and more. Like, every time I'd scrub my hair, I would, like, look at my hand. And it was just so, I think it's, like, more of, like, it's, it's a different type of grief because you don't want it to happen, but then it's happening and then it's hard to let go. So then like that time, like, you know, there was like lots of like basically gaps throughout my head and my friends would be like, Eddie, just go shave it off. Like, why are you even trying? And I wanted to hold on to it. You know, I would wear hats and I bought like, I remember at one point I bought this like L'Oreal spray where you spray into some areas to color it in. And I still have stains on my pillowcases from it. So mm. um, it's just like, I think it's it's um it's it's hard to really explain the grief of it but then when it's gone it's gone and then like you you can't remember life with it um but I think the process of losing it is the hard part. A lot of it has to do with control and so much of any kind of mm-hmm. loss is something's mm-hmm. happening that I can't control and I I want to scream and even my scream would have nothing won't change anything and I can't make it different so uh, every loss is like that right we We feel like we're losing hold. Untethered to something that, like, you know, also takes your attention every day, right? Like, you know, it's it's such a grasp of your attention of, like, Mm -hmm. what's happening. You're like, I am this person who's losing my hair at age 19. You know what I mean? And every day it's like, oh, the hair. And, like, you're looking at it and it's, like, a missing thing. And it's it's constantly, like, rubbing a wound, Become obsessed. Mm-hmm. You can become obsessed with with yeah. the noticing it in your mind. Did you feel that it was an obsessive thought for you as well as a loss? No. It was, yeah, I think it was definitely an obsessive thought. Yeah. And it was like whenever I would get sweaty, you know, your hair clumps up so then you could see the holes. Mm. And then I would like worry about it. And then like, you know, there, there was always a worry and a fear with yeah, it as I would anxiety. go on. Yeah. yeah, a lot of anxiety that would go into it. Like, mm-hmm. how does it look like? It's like I never cared about what I was wearing. And I only cared about like what my hair looked like for those two years that I was like, really losing my hair and I think that um like at the time I can't believe I put so much pressure on myself over something like that because it's like it's beyond your you know um control as you said it's beyond you to what you can do to it and I remember I hardly had any money but then I like spent like $300 to go see a dermatologist to look at me and he was like sorry kiddo like if this is too late like I could have given you some pills if you came to me earlier but like now it's too late and you shouldn't even try to like keep keep holding on to this and I was like okay and like you know it's hard to hear that too from a doctor because I was like so excited to finally get an appointment and go see a dermatologist and I was like you know there's gonna be hope in this I'm gonna spend all this money to see him and I'm gonna there's gonna be hope and then there was nothing so really it is giving up the control and just letting it go Right. imagine it also sensitizes you to other people who have different handicaps 
you know, because it's mm-hmm. a right. It's a very similar feeling. There's all kinds of things that happen that we can't control, and I must. It must have sensitized you to thinking about other people too. Mm-hmm. No, it definitely yeah. did. And then, like you know, when you're young and you get on the subway, and then like you start look like I used to just start looking around for like the bald men to be mm-hmm. like, oh, like he's bald. Oh, he's bald. Like he looks good bald. You know. <laughs> so like I think that had a lot to do with it as well. Yeah, well, an acceptance. And also, I think, you know, early in life, it's probably subliminally without you noticing it at the time, but a way of realizing that, like, you know, when we're young, it's it's a coming into the realization for many of us, although, of course, some people have experienced early life extreme trauma, Mm -hmm. but that, like, life does become out of your out of your control, out of your hands, that we lose things and we lose people and we lose parts of ourselves against our will. And I think as we experience losses like that, whether they be like death of people or parts of ourselves or business or whatever it may be, we become like acclimated to it. So each new mm-hmm. loss becomes, well, not less painful necessarily, more palatable, but that first big disappointment, you know, whatever it may be that kind of alerts you to the realities of life is very jarring. Mm -hmm. No, it really is jarring. It also, I think it takes time, especially the first time or the second time that you're going through it. It takes time for you to get over it or to learn how to get over it or to learn to work past it and not just be fixated on it. Like, I don't have any more hair. Like the hair's gone. What am I going to do with it? It's like, no, you just, you got to like have to give up on caring so much and you got to like lose the control over the thought on it and then move on. Exactly. And that always takes time. Yeah, it's, it really does. It's a lot does. of work. It is a we lot of work. So Eddie, we, you also mentioned that um, your grandmother passed away and this was at the same, a similar time, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And yeah. do you feel like in tandem with the grieving of your grandma, who you mentioned you were so close with, and I know that you also said that, you know, part of what you're doing or a large part of what you're doing in your business is an homage to her and uh, her and her cooking and culture and everything. So, you know, how did these two kind of difficult situations play play into themselves at the time? Um, I don't know if that had to do with that or how they work together, but to be honest, I, I, there was a part of me that waited for my grandmother to pass away for me to come out of the closet. Mm. And I think after I came out is when I like really started losing my hair. Mm. And I think that maybe the correlation is like, there's a step in between the Mm. correlation, but there is definitely a correlation in some way, somehow. Um, I like it kind of just all fumbled together. It was like my grandmother passed away. I got suspended. I came out and then I lost my hair. That was like, kind of like how it all happened. So, um, so it was like almost like a lot of traumas right after each other, very choppy, but then like moving to New York. So then after I got suspended, my parents were like, you can do whatever you want, but we're not helping you. Um, but if you want, come back to Boston, live at home and go work at a restaurant and save up money. And I said, well, there's no way I'm going to do that. I want to go explore, you know, New York and what it has to offer. So, um, so that's what I, that's really what I did. So I think it's hard to say that the correlation is there in the sense of it's like that caused this, but there's also a lot of layers throughout it. Of course, that's a good way of putting it. Um, and do you feel like you, you know, did you wait to come out till after your grandmother passed away because you were worried about her, 
her judgment about your your being out of the closet? Yeah, I think that I felt like I owed it to her to not come out because she was such a religious person and just believed in God so much and just I didn't want to break her heart and I didn't want her to look at me differently and I didn't I just didn't want that memory of me to be different for her so I kind of just I I kept quiet and I think that it's not like I didn't come out to the world. I think that I didn't even come out to myself, even though deep inside I knew it. I just felt like I needed that layer to be off of me before I was able to come out. How do you feel about that decision looking back at it now? Would it, you know, does it feel like it was the, the right one for you? I mean, obviously at the time we do what we do, but if you could have, you know, kind of talk to your younger self being, um, you know, embracing your I, sexuality now, like would have you changed it? I think that I... I think that I came out at the right time for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think I did it for the right time for me. And, you know, maybe it was like, you know, I kind of felt it before, but then I waited for my grandmother pass away to come out. But then that's what made me feel comfortable with coming out. And I think that's what's the most important thing is when you, when you feel comfortable within yourself to be like, well, this is who I am now, like, Go on, you know, like now go on with your life and see what happens. You know, I want to point out something you said. You said, I shed a layer. I shed that layer. It made me think of your hair as that layer that you shed, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. No, I really did. Yeah. So tell us about your family background. And and it sounds like the structure of the family was very important. Your grandmother was important to you. And tell us more about that. I mean... Structure of family in Lebanon is very, very important. You know, it's like family is so close together. Family is everything. Family is culture. Family is values. Family is do's and rights and wrongs. And, you know, we we stand up for our family more than anything. And I think for me, like, I grew up in a very small town that was very family-oriented. And you carried your last name. You know what I mean? Like, who, whose son are you? Like, it's always, like, that's how it kind of went. Like, you know, in, in, in my hometown, the father of, a, like, a father of a man, they always, they don't call him by their name. They always call him the father of X. Oh, wow. So it's, like, there's a lot of deep roots that goes into the family mm. aspect of things in, in Lebanese culture. So, um, <clears throat> so I think that, like, really stuck with me. I also had, like, an amazing grandfather that... Um, I mean, he's still around and he's just one of those people that is just so well known in our town. And he's just, he's such an amazing man. And I felt like I always needed to like work hard. Um, Now I feel like I work hard for my whole family to just prove to them that they did the right thing to moving to America. But I think back then when we were young, it was always like trying to please him or trying to Mm. please the people around us while they're entertaining to make him look like a good image. Um, So I think there's a lot of layers to it. And with me, with my family, you know, uh, my mom's side of the family is more Syrian and uh, uh, has a bigger background with in Switzerland that my mom and her sisters all grew up in Switzerland during the war. So she has a lot of like French influence, but also Syrian influence because my grandfather on my mom's side owned a company in Syria and they grew up most of their life in Syria. So there's a lot of like food that comes in from that side as well. 
um, that I, you know, I feel like I don't mention as much, but there's a lot of influence there as well because I used to go to Syria um, to Aleppo um, like some weekends to go visit our grandfather. And really, honestly, I used it used to be like torture for me to go to Syria because it was such a long drive and there's not much to do there. There's no beach and there's none of that. And I used to love going to the beach and my grandfather was like a very much a um, a work ethic man would always be working he didn't have time for us to like you know go do things so um i didn't enjoy it as much it felt like i had to go just to please my mom but that was really about it but now looking back at it i think about the amazing syrian food that i ate there but also the influence of syrian food to my family and how my mom's my mom's mom my grandmother from my mother's side influenced my mother on my dad's side to start adding a little bit more spice a little bit more red pepper paste a little bit more aleppo pepper you know like in syria they stuff their kibbeh with walnuts like my grandmother would have never done that kind of using more butter instead of oil like there's just so many different things that i think inherited into my my massy side of the family's cooking because of my hilal is my mom's um last name side of the family like they kind of like correlated together and that's another thing that's beautiful like when two families get along they really you we had such a big family in a way that was so close to each other it was really beautiful that's that's Um, really beautiful and really and you know bobby and i come from quite a small family and like from Mm -hmm. a broken family my parents got divorced when i was really young i'm an only child and you know, strained relationships with aunts and uncles and stuff like that. So just sitting here and hearing about that is such like, mm. it's so heartwarming. And I feel, I don't know, like, A, the way you're describing it, I feel right there with you. And also just, you know, uh, it's a it's a beautiful thing to have. And it's something that feels very, I don't know, just uncommon to me. I can't even imagine it, but I'm so happy that you had that kind of experience because it can really inform the rest of our lives in such a deep way, you know? And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of the kind of individualistic, non-community-based living that we have here in America, and of course that does not for everyone, you know, but like Mm -hmm. it's, it happens often, very often, more often than not, um, really robs us of that, of that sense of community and of family togetherness and, and what it provides for people as human beings going forward, having like not just, you know, one source of love or one parent or two parents where you're supposed to get all of this kind of love from, but a group of people, a community right. of people, a large family. Mm-hmm. And it can like really just inform who we become as adults and then what we put into the world. So I think it's beautiful mm-hmm. that you had that. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. No, I, <clears throat> no, I definitely believe that. Sorry, Bobby. Oh, it's okay. I was going to ask you what brought your family here. What what brought them to immigrate, and what was that like? Um, it was horrible. Um, I, you know what, my parents, my parents had an amazing life in Lebanon. They really did not have to do this for themselves. Um, they did this for my sister and I. They knew that. <clears throat> that if we stayed in Lebanon, you know, I would take over my dad's business, which he took over from his dad, and my sister would, you know, maybe work in the city, but, like, wouldn't really, you know, you don't really make a lot of money there, and it's a lot of, like, family-owned business moving on to another family-owned business, and um, <clears throat> and I think that they wanted us to have a better future. They wanted us to have a good education. They wanted us to have a bright future, and they didn't want to worry about us as they grew up. 
Um, and I think that's, a, that's what happens in Lebanon. And I think like we moved at such an amazing time. To be honest, I mean, I just went back to Lebanon in May and I've never been more grateful to have moved out, as sad as that is for me to say, but the country has gone back like worse than when we left it like 16 years ago, which is really, really sad. Like, you know, it's gotten really, really corrupt. And with everything that's going on in the Middle East, Lebanon is really struggling, I would say, the most. It's struggled for quite a while now. But after the explosion and after the like just everything that's gone on with COVID, it has it has definitely seen better days and our dollar just completely plummeted and the government is holding gas from its people. So right now you can only get five gallons of gas a week, which is so sad. Um, the electricity, normally we get like about 12 to 14 hours of electricity a day. Now it's down to like, I think eight to 10. So you have to have a generator at all times and there's no gas for the generators. So so people are really, really, really struggling. So <clears throat> I would say that I've always been proud of Lebanon and I, was all, I will always be proud of Lebanon, but the politics and the government has gotten so corrupt that I don't see, I don't see a bright future for the people. And I just feel so bad for the people that live there because everything is insane there. Thank you for enlightening us about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's very painful to hear. And I'm sure like matched with like the beautiful memories you have of your childhood. I mean, you know, this is a show in which we're obviously talking about food and grief and it's just the juxtaposition about how we began this episode and you telling us about like the gorgeous, just such vivid imagery of the beautiful seaside, you know, village you were from and the gorgeous food and your family. And it really is, it's a grief to have not only personally lost that, but then to see you know, the people of Lebanon and extended family and stuff also kind of suffering in what you left off with an image, as you're saying, of being so pure and beautiful. Mm -hmm. and that's hard. It, yeah, it's really sad. I think like, like when I, I, the last time I had been to Lebanon before this past trip was the summer of 2019. And I had the best, the absolute best summer yet. You know, Beirut was after the, um, Israeli war had, had really come back. It had really, really come back. The restaurants were back. The life was back. I was so proud. You know, there was finally like straight flights from like Amsterdam and like all over Europe to Lebanon before there wasn't. And, you know, life was really back. There were so many tourists. The Airbnbs were like beautiful and the bars and everything was amazing. And I was like, this is the Lebanon I want to bring my friends to. Mm. And then like fast forward a year and it just all all plummeted so fast and the biggest grief for me with Lebanon right now is having lost all those amazing restaurants in Beirut and yes they're like slowly coming back but it's also really sad because Lebanon like imported 60% of their food and so after the explosion happened Lebanon had to like work off of its own resources because mm -hmm. it wasn't importing food so there was such a big shortage like you know we don't really produce a lot of milk in Lebanon they the kids may, mainly drink like powdered milk nido so that was like gone and you know it it just became food became scarce and then all you were eating was Lebanese product but the Lebanese people are used to not just eating Lebanese products right. so it was really difficult but it was also really difficult for the the companies in Lebanon and the manufacturers in Lebanon to keep up with with the supply and demand within Lebanon right 
right. You know, because you can't, you also can't forget after the Syria war a few years ago, you know, nobody really talks about this, but Lebanon has the most amount of Syrians out of anywhere else. You know, Lebanon has more Syrians right now than Lebanese people. Right. So really? I didn't our, realize that. Yeah, there's, oh. there, the, the, our infrastructure can't keep up with it. You know, the electricity, the water, the Wi-Fi, the food, it is very, very hard to keep up with because I believe, don't quote me on this, I believe there was like one point, no, 2.8 million people in Lebanon and now we're like up to like 4.55 million with all the Syrians refugees. So our infrastructure can't keep up with its own demand. Plus taking away 60% of the food imported, it's a mess, truly a mess. That's really sad. And I really, I mean, after the show or at another point, I'd love to talk to you more about like, if there's any, and you're welcome to share right now, if there's any ways in which, you know, folks can get engaged in trying to like help or send resources. Like if there are things that like, you know, it's it's honestly, it's been really hard because you can't even wire money right now to Lebanon because the government has the banks locked down, which is like a whole other thing. Like even if you have millions in your bank account, you can only take $5,000 out a week from your account, which has been very hard for people that are especially elderly that have to pay for big bills. So that's a whole other corruption, but I'm trying to figure out a way to put together a fundraiser where I can bring the money with me cash to Lebanon when I'm I'm going back in August. Um, So I'm hoping Hoping to do something then so I will keep you posted on please that. do and we would love to be able to share that with our listeners and contribute and help in any way that we could so you know one way yes. in which we know that you are keeping the traditions of your youth and your early life uh, if intact and sharing them with the masses is through your beautiful uh, grocer and catering business that you have which I am sh- upset with myself beyond words that I haven't yet visited, but it is now a high, high priority for me after reconnecting with you. Um, Can you just tell us about the business you started and how that kind of helps you stay connected with your, like, what is the, how, what impact does the food that you make have on your life and and your ties to your past? Um, I think, I think, you know, it all ties in together, you know, because when I had the catering business, I was doing the Lebanese food, but it was very hard to find the Lebanese ingredients. So I would go to Sahadis and Kalustians and Damascus and try to like get whatever I can. And whenever I would go up to Boston to visit my family, there's some great Lebanese grocery stores there too. And then I was just like, I need, like, I want a place where I can have all these Lebanese goods that I'm always looking for. That's what I want. And that's kind of how the grocer kind of came about. I mean, of course, it was due and caused by COVID because I closed my catering company. But it was like, well, what am I going to do? And then it kind of just came to me, like, you know, doing a grocer with some simple food, meze, and kind of like seeing where it goes. And people were all about the to-go all of a sudden. So when I closed a catering business down, I started a quarantine menu where I had people like order from me through Instagram and they would come pick up or I would deliver or whatever. And that really picked up in Greenpoint. Like that was insane. When I first, I first started the first week, I think I was doing like maybe 10, 15 orders. And then like the last week that I did it was like 80 plus orders. So so it was, and I was, and I was doing it alone. I know it was awesome, but it was very hard because during COVID, you know, like it was so hard to find food and it was so hard to like go to the grocery store and all that. So that was that, that, 
own thing, but that's how I was like, okay, well, it looks like the Green Pointers want some Lebanese food. Like, I'm hearing your message and let's see what we can do with it. And that's kind of how Eddie's Grocer came about. Um, that's how kind of the idea grew. And when I opened, I really had no, when I tell you I had no idea, I really truly mean I had no idea what I was doing. Like, Same. I was like, okay. I can connect with you over that. No idea. I know that feeling. Like, no clue. I was like, okay, we'll get some spices. We'll get some nuts. We'll get some dried fruits. Oh, some Lebanese groceries. Oh, that's my favorite chip. Oh, that's my favorite chocolate bar. And I was like, let's get some drinks up in here. Like, I, it was weird, like, how it all kind of came together. And writing the menu, I think, was obviously the funnest part, but it was also the most difficult part because it's like, well, I don't know what people want. And am I doing too much? Am I doing too little? Should I do breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Should I do, like, breakfast, lunch, and meat? Like, it was, like, all over the place. Yeah. So... Um, I would say like now it's been about a year and August will be our one year anniversary, but one, like it's been almost a year and it's really been quite the journey to learn what customers want and what customers like and what they, they like it at and mm-hmm. what, and what they get comfortable with and what they get used to and what, you know, what they just don't enjoy at all. So it's been really quite the learning process because with catering, you know, your client calls you, they know exactly what they want. We're having 25 people over. I have a vegetarian, I have a gluten-free person. Know this, know that. We want this. My husband likes that. Boom, boom. It's done. You know exactly what you want. And you plan for it, right? You plan exactly. There's no food waste. There's nothing. But then with the store, one day they could come in and everybody wants a hot coffee. The next day everybody wants cold brew. And then just like, oh, and it's same with like the dips or yeah. like, you know, some days they can come in and everybody wants a manouche, which is a Lebanese breakfast flatbread. And then the next day nobody wants it and everybody wants an empanada. But then you fired off like, you know, 20 of them because they were so popular the day before. Yeah. So it's such a like gamble every day that it's that's been like the hardest part to really yeah. Very hard. And I'm going to go ahead and make a connection here, which is that it seems as though you are meeting the challenge of, of the unknown and the uncertainty with grace. I, kn- I know it's probably not always easy, but it seems to me as though you're really meeting the challenge. And I wonder if it's not because of, you know, some of the challenges that you've been asked to meet before. And I really find that like, that is so often the case. And from where we began and you telling us about, you know, your struggles with hair loss and with family loss and with moving to a new country and all these different adjustments that you're asked to make, like, and I I don't, and I'm sure you might have bad days and I don't know the full story here, but I can just tell from seeing you and your attitude and your presence that like this challenge doesn't seem to be defeating you. You know what I mean? And you seem to be joyous and happy and proud of what you've built. And I I think I'm going to make the connection that maybe some of these previous kind of traumas and pains uh, have informed that. Would you say that that's true at all? I think that's true. I think that with every challenge, you learn something. You're always learning. I'm always constantly learning. And I'm so young. And people are always telling me, you're so young. You're so young. They've been saying it to me for years now. And I'm always like, yeah, I know. Like, you know, I always said to yourself, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're not. <laughs> but now that I've like, you know, I'm, when I first started all this, I was 21, 22. And now I'm 26. It's like I've learned so much in these past four years yeah. that I feel like at time, time is, is, 
time is what makes you learn and time is like really like i mean it's crazy but it's so hard to explain this but without time and the challenges in between i would never have grown you know and i would never and also like really with the challenge of you know understanding what the clients want and all that there is also there's a learning process you're really starting to learn your insights and who's coming in who's coming out who's buying this you know you've got on Saturday, your Brooklyners are not going to come out before 12 because they're hungover. Right. You know, it's like it's like really learning the people in yeah. your and who's coming in and your in your clientele. And then from there, it's like starting to adjust things slowly. And I don't know if you know this app, but too good to go. Um, oh, yes, I do. Love this. Yes, I, I tell us about it, though, because that's really interesting. I absolutely love this app. I swear by it. There's no food that goes bad at any grocer because of it. So when something is about to go bad um, or like about to go out of date, even though it's still good, we put these magic bags, they're called, on Too Good To Go and people go in and buy them. So it's a value of like $18 and you pay $5.99 for it. Wow. That's amazing. And and it's amazing and then people come in and pick it up and then it's great because they get to try new things but also what's great is that they come in and they've bought this $5.99 bag that's an $18 value but then they're coming in and getting a coffee or picking up something else or oh I remember I need pita or I need this for tonight and then it kind of gets the customer to come in to to really look at your food and experience it but also get some free not free but some goodies along the way absolutely Um, and it's a shame of how much food has to go to waste in a restaurant. And I just wanted to say before, we're going to have to wrap it up soon, but I want to say just as someone who started their own restaurant when I was 26, you know, and having lived through wonderful highs and some terrible, terrible low moments in between really, but like such polarity and some, some consistency in between, but that like, you know, not that you need my advice at all, but just if I may. I do. Just oh, I take do. it all, take it all in because you will, you will use this someday. You will use it because doing what you're doing is one of the most on your own is one of the most challenging jobs. Now is the subject matter as, as, uh, crucial as being a doctor or, you know, firefighter? No, but the immediacy is, and the pressure is, and, um, learning about, um, you know, your own personal belief system versus being in a capitalist system is like, there's mm-hmm. so many important lessons in there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and just learning how to fucking survive truly in a, in a city and industry that wants you to disappear essentially. Literally. And is built Literally. to crush you. If you can yes. somehow thrive and be a decent person through it, you're going to come out on the other side someday with some really valuable shit, man. I'm telling you that. <laughs> I, ca- I call it the Thank croissant you. theory. It's the croissant layer, layer theory. And you mentioned layers before. It's mm-hmm. layers of knowledge, layers of experience becomes who we are and the wisdom of who we are. So yeah. everything, even the difficult experiences are another layer that inform us, as you say, and teach us. So Absolutely. Eddie, Absolutely. at the end of each episode, we do have two things yes. that we ask everyone. First thing okay. is if you could be you know, talking to your former self at the beginning of whatever experience this is. So, you know, whatever the grieving experience that you're thinking could be when you lost your grandmother or when you were losing your hair or wherever you felt the most vulnerable in your life, when you could have used a lesson or some advice, what would have you told your former self? Time. I let time play its game. 
Beautiful. That's it's very true and very important. I want to add one more thing to that. It's interesting. I have these signs on my wall. And, you know, of course, in grieving and healing, we talk about time. And people say time heals. But it's really one of the signs I have. It says it's not time alone that heals. It's what we do at the time and our loyalty to life that truly helps us heal. So time is important, but not everybody can use time effectively. Loyalty it's what you life. do with your time. Exactly. Yes. It's what you do with the time. Exactly, exactly. And the, eff- and the effort that you put into exactly. that time. Exactly, that's exactly and right. And if you are putting effort and strength into your life during that time, something will come out of it. A loyalty to life, yep. And to loyalty to food and yes. sharing and that with other people. Passion. And really? then the other question yeah. that we ask everyone is, uh, you know, we're so used to being in the studio and like getting to be around people. And it's weird that we now have to be on zoom. So we want to kind of imagine that we were all together and not only all together, but they were, that we're all sharing a meal together. And if we were, what would we all bring to our meal together? Um, well, I know I would be bringing some of my classics, some, uh, Labne, which is one of my favorites, uh, spicy tomato jam, our marinated mm. feta. Um, I think that I, if it's a summer, it's a summer day. I would probably be bringing one of my salads, maybe um, our corn tomato minty vinaigrette salad with some bronzino oh. and uh, a little biscuit au chocolat for dessert. Oh. That sounds delicious. My goodness. I'm gonna bring yeah. something that I feel like will mesh. But it's something that I've been wanting to make really badly since summer began. We used to do something similar to it at Brucey, but I, I want to do, I would bring homemade stracciatella with mm. watermelon and bombo mm. calabrese, that fermented Yum. pepper stuff. And I think it would go really <laughs> great with the kind of different salads and yummy things that you're bringing. Yes, 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 yes. That sounds delicious. Yeah. Bobby? All right. Well, the thing that comes to mind is that I have a Hungarian um, background. So my mom made strudel, but I evolved and I made strudels my whole life. I made all kinds of strudels, savory strudels, sweet strudels. And one of the sweet strudels that I made was phyllo dough that had layered with lots of butter and hazelnut, crumbled hazelnut and chocolate mm. and cocoa. Oh. And it's, so it's like a, it's like, um, a like babka a strudel. It's like a babka strudel. Ooh. Right. So, Ooh. so that's what I would bring. Yeah. And we, um, and we need some coffee or tea, I think, right? Some yes, yes. Lebanese drinks, coffee? Sure. Or, yeah, okay. Yes, sure. right. yes. Sounds Eddie, good. this was really awesome. And I just want to, like, encourage everyone and myself, because I have not yet been, which, again, I'm ashamed of, um, to get down to Eddie's Grocer in Greenpoint. And we're going to attach a link and all the things in our Instagram post and in the notes for the show. And, Eddie, thank you so much. And a sincere, deep, warm Good luck to you in your in your business. And also, I want to mention that I think we have some friends in common who are coming over for dinner tonight. The gals from Dacha, Jess and Trina. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, fine. Yeah. Oh, I love them. Oh, that's great. Yeah, they're so cool. So I will say yes. hi because we're please having a say dinner hi. party tonight. <laughs> yes, please, please say hi. Please come by Eddie's Grocer anytime. We'd okay. love to have you. And thank you very much for having me on. A Our pleasure. pleasure. Anytime. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. 
We realized that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.